discussions of an arcade addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 54 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, some stuff went down since last we left off with episode 53. Uh, let's see. <laughs> On the bad news side, uh, I did my taxes and I owe this year. I don't know how, but I made over $50,000 last year. Well, part of that comes from also getting my unemployment from my previous job when COVID first hit. That took over a year and a half for me to get it so when I finally got it it was good but you know how that goes when you collect unemployment you have to pay taxes on it um and also the stimulus on top of that so yeah I ended up being in a different tax bracket and yeah so I've got to pay Uncle Sam and the state of Michigan this year so this is going to put some serious crimps on travel plans because I really planned on going to uh, Connecticut sometime either late spring or early summer but now I'm gonna have to push it back until the close to the end of summer um, I think this might put a kibosh on me going to Chicago this year but we shall see um, I really don't want to put myself in debt by going to Chicago and that trip cost me quite a bit of money that I actually had so um, I'm just gonna have to postpone it probably until maybe about this time next year we'll see you know whoever who knows I could even hit the lottery and all this stuff will be immaterial um, aside from that um, I didn't go to my shift at the arcade last week I picked up whatever bug my son got from school and I was pretty much down and out on Saturday so I basically called in and took it easy and you know just relaxed and kind of tried to you know recover and prepare for the oncoming work week um, let's see what else is going on um yeah things are a little crazy at my primary job uh, there's a lot of changes going on and I don't know how that's gonna affect my shift I mean it's already affected it but I don't know what the how it's going to be long term right now there's a lot of things going on so um hopefully everything settles down and then i can get back into a bit of a routine i am considering if i don't get enough hours from this job i may just uh talk to the owner of the arcade in brighton and work in the warehouse five days a week i don't know maybe maybe not we'll see that's just something i've been thinking about um Let's see, aside from that, gaming-wise, let's see, been playing um, uh, the Forgotten Realms Collection Volume 2, which has all of the classic gold box games in it. I started with Pool of Radiance, then I said, you want to know what? Screw it. Let's go to the next one, because that one's more fun. So I started Curse of the Azure Bonds. I'm about two-fifths of the way through it, and, you know, I'm having fun. Uh, let's see, playing Neon Sundown playing Nova Drift. I just actually finished Nova Drift, uh, uh, a game of Nova Drift, I should say, for the first time in a couple of months, and the score I got was just under, uh, just didn't, just came short of cracking the top 10. Um, my high score on Nova Drift is like 900,000 points. 
that was of course before uh, all the major um, updates and changes that uh, uh, Chimeric made to the game and my favorite build which is basically the um, Salvo um, Shockwave and um, Assault build um, that ch the changes are really really significant and it's a little bit of trouble to get that far along in the game but still I got to wave 160 or 165 um, so I'm pretty proud of that considering I hadn't played it in a while um, every time I did try to play it you know I tried using some of the builds that I would see on YouTube and things like that but that requires me to play in such a different way that I don't get very far because you know it's when you're trying to play a game a certain way you've been playing it for a certain way and then all of a sudden you have to change the way you play it yeah there's a lot of uh foibles and missteps and that kind of thing going on not to mention chimeric made that game like on like it by a, like a magnitude of five and he's made it much harder to play so you know it is what it is oh uh, let's see been playing BattleTech. um been playing um operation steel i actually got all of the stages and completed the map so now i'm turning around and doing the boss run through uh excuse me the boss rush that's what they call it and uh i got i finally finished that i think yesterday as a matter of fact i was a little surprised i thought i was going to have to go further than I did and then when the game suddenly ended and my initials are there and I'm on the top of my uh, high scoreboard I was a little surprised so um, yeah I've been doing that um, I haven't been going very much of anywhere there's a bit of an issue with uh, getting paid from one of my secondary jobs so I'm forced to kind of stay at home base a little more um, once that gets resolved, I think everything will be fine. I still have plans on going out to Detroit and making a day of it out there. I have to just have to make sure things around the house are okay before I can take off for the better part of a day because there are at least two or three places in downtown Detroit that I want to go to and being able to, um, number one, enjoy myself and number two, record notes for the podcast that takes at least a couple of hours at each place so that's pretty much uh, a full afternoon going into the evening um i'm still keeping an eye on uh places like bobcat bonnie's that i want to go back to but um right now their operation hours are you know really early they close early like 10 o'clock and we'll just have to see about that maybe a sunday night after my son's gone to sleep I could sneak over there for a couple hours. We'll see. Uh, let's see. So, moving right along, I've checked emails and voicemails, and still nothing there. So, once again, you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, you have a uh, arcade game yourself that's one of your favorites that you would like me to cover, and I haven't covered it as of yet, please get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, I have a phone number for voicemails if you want to go that route. That number is area code 734-743-2433. Also, I have social media up and running. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. They'll take you right to the page. 
Um, if you search Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, there is a discussion group that goes along with that. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think it's time for me to pose a question to uh, the people who have joined. So I'm going to probably do that tomorrow. Um, let's see. On Instagram, I am at Arcade Addict Brian, all one word. Also, I am on Tumblr. That is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. And on Twitter, I am at Arcade Addict underscore B. So there you go. Multiple ways of getting hold of the show if you are so inclined. And hey, I'm here for you. If you got a question, ask it and we'll see where we go from there. Okay, let's get on to the show. I have a lot to talk about tonight. <laughs> it's just how this rotation of topics came up. So I'm going to jump right into it because it's already late and I want to get this done. So let's do it. Are you experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, baby, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Say like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Atari versus RBI Baseball. Now, this is a game that, I, like I've said in a previous couple of episodes, this is a machine. This is a game that I first encountered when I was working at CVS out in Fairfield. There was a bowling alley across the street from the shopping center that my CVS was based in, and I found that in there, and I immediately started playing it. It was a really fun game for me. But let's get on with... Uh, going to wikipedia now there are two entries for this because i'm going to read the first one which is the japanese game because the two games tie together so i'm going to do that right now and of course once again through thanks to wikipedia okay we're going to start with pro baseball family stadium that's the japanese name for rbi baseball uh pro baseball family stadium was released in Japan in 1986. Uh, it's also called RBI Baseball in North America. Uh, the game was originally developed and published by Namco for the family computer Famicom, but I'm also talking about the arcade one, which was uh, distributed by Atari, but it was still um, put in uh, Nintendo Versus machines. So let's get right to the, uh, right to the development. <clears throat> Pro Baseball Family Stadium was created by Namco programmer Yoshihiro Kishimoto, who had previously worked on games such as Baraduke in 1985. The planner for Toy Pop, Takafumi Hyodo, had transferred from a different section of the company. As his first time being a planner, Hyodo was rather slow, which left Kishimoto with plenty of free time. For a short while, he spent most of his time playing Nintendo's baseball for the Famicom with some of his colleagues, where during play they would bring up how certain parts of the game could be fixed or improved, notably the lack of names or abilities for the in-game players. Kishimoto also expressed disappointment towards the game's lack of playable defense. Yeah, I tend to agree with that statement. Nintendo baseball, as much as fun as it was, yeah, playing that game was really, really frustrating in some ways. But to continue... Uh, once the develop of Toy Pop was completed, Kishimoto decided to try making a baseball game of his own. 
The project was made for the family computer due to the system's massive success in Japan and for Namco's console and arcade operations being part of the same division, allowing Kishimoto to easily begin development of the game in his section of the company. After asking his supervisor about what work he was assigned to next, he was instead told he could make whatever type of game he wanted due to a lack of work needed by him for the time being. Family Stadium was Kishimoto's first experience with developing a game for the Famicom with assembly code. Uh, it was also Namco's first baseball video game. Pri as prior to the game's release, they had released several baseball-themed mechanical arcade games, such as Pitchin' in 1979 and Batting Chance in 1981. Uh, the release. Uh, Pro Baseball Family Stadium was released in Japan on December 10th, 1986. Atari Games released the game for arcades in North America in September 1987, renamed Versus Atari RBI Baseball for the Nintendo Versus System arcade unit. The version was later released for the Nintendo Entertainment System by Tengen sim as simply RBI Baseball, being one of the company's only three officially licensed games released for the console. That's something I need to talk about, that whole thing with Tengen, because it's really interesting. But, mental note, I'll put it down later. Let's continue. Uh, Atari programmer Peter Lipson adapted Family Stadium into the American localized version RBI Baseball for the NES, which was published by Atari Games subsidiary Tengen. Uh, RBI Baseball became the first console game of its kind to be licensed by the Major League Baseball Players Association and use actual NBA player names, unlike other baseball video games of the late 1980s. As it was not licensed by Major League Baseball itself, it did not use team nicknames or logos. The game has 10 teams in the Atari League, and the teams are the Oakland A's, the Houston Astros, the Atlanta Braves, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Chicago Cubs, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the San Francisco Giants, the Cincinnati Reds, the Boston Red Sox, and the New York Yankees. And each team also is comprised of their historically best players, pitchers, uh, pitchers fielders, and hitters. And the reception. Upon release, Pro Baseball Family Stadium was met with met with critical acclaim by critics. It re received a Famitsu score of 35 out of 40, making it one of the oldest games in the Famitsu Platinum Hall of Fame, which is a game that scores 35 out of 40 points according to their rating system. Reviewers applauded its gameplay and a sense of realism, as well as its usage of giving each of the players actual names and abilities in the first Famitsu Best Hit Game Awards, published in February 1987, the game received the award for Best Sports Game. It was also a commercial success. In Japan, it topped the Famitsu sales charts of January 1987 and sold 2.05 million copies by 1990. I think that's the NES version. Uh, it went to sell over 2.5 million copies, making it one of the best-selling Famicom games of all time. In the second Famitsu Best Hit Game Awards, published in February 1988, the game received the Long Seller Award. Uh, in the United States, RBI Baseball top, topped the sales charts in August 1988. Okay, that is the Pro Baseball entry. Let's go to RBI Baseball. Namco developed and released uh, Pro Baseball Family Stadium for the family computer in their first game in their Family Stadium series. On December 10th, 1986 is when it was released. Pro Baseball Family Stadium was created by Namco programmer Yoshihiro Kishimoto, which it, who had previously worked on games such as Baraduke in 1985, as was said. Uh, let's see. Atari Games released, it, released a Nintendo vs. System arcade machine of Family Stadium. 
in, named Atari base or Atari RBI Baseball in 1987. Uh, Atari programmer Peter Lipson adapted the family stadium into the American localized version RBI Baseball for the NES, which was published by Atari Games subsidiary Tengen, of course, as was said. Subsequent editions were published until 1995, mostly on Sega systems. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, let's see the gameplay. Uh, each player has different capabilities in the game. Uh, hitters vary in, ability, vary in ability to make solid contact, hit the ball with power, and their base running speed. Vince Coleman is the fastest player in the game. I dispute that because it's Vince Coleman, uh, Lou Brock, and, and uh, Ricky Henderson. Those are the three fastest players in the game. Um, it is very catch difficult to catch any of them stealing second base. Pitchers vary in pitching speed and the amount by which the player can steer the ball left and right during its flight. Pitchers also have varying stamina. As a pitcher gets tired, the ball slows down and it's harder to steer. Nolan Ryan and Roger Clemens are two pitchers in the game with the fastest pitches. That's true. <laughs> I've seen Nolan Ryan throw a pitch, clocked it 103 or 104 miles an hour, I think. Uh, let's see. Fernando Valenzuela, without a hard fastball, has tremendous movement in both directions with his pitches. Mike Scott has a sharp and deceptive breaking ball. The best pitcher is debatable depending on how they are used by the players. There is no evidence that fielding abilities correspond to individual players. Yes, they, well, no, not fielding abilities. Throw, being able to throw the ball, yes. Because there are some players who can throw the ball and you could actually throw somebody out trying to stretch a single into a double. Um, there are also others who are just kind of weak when it comes to throwing, throwing the baseball. But let's continue. The abilities of each player do not necessarily correspond with the statistics show on the screen when the player comes to bat or takes the mound. These statistics are generally accurate, with many exceptions. They do not change during the course of the game or sequence of games. A rudimentary box score is displayed during and after the game showing composite statistics for each team. A hit batter is credited with a walk, and anyone reaching on an error gets credited for a hit even as the other team is charged with an error. Conversely, a batter thrown out while trying for ex extra bases is not credited with a hit. That's true. Uh, the infield fly rule is not implemented. Unlike Major League Baseball, RBI Baseball implements the mercy rule. If one team is ahead by 10 or more runs after any number of completed innings, the game ends immediately. That's not true. If you are... If a team scores 10 runs, or that totals 10 runs at any point during an inning, the game immediately is over. I do know that, because I've had that done to me a few times, and I've done it to the computer a lot of times. So there. Um, additionally, while the statistics shown on the screen for each player in the original game are reasonably accurate, their playing attributes were not always accurate. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, in versus RBI Baseball, the teams are made up of legends from 10 different franchises, which I just named. Um, these players were statistically represented with their best seasons, which was a genius move, actually. It makes the game really interesting to play. A notable exception was that of Mark McGuire, who was included on the Oakland team and was statistically represented by his potential numbers. In a remarkable display of foresight, he was projected to hit 62 home runs in his best season. 
1998, he then he set the then major league record for home runs in a, in a season with 70. And let's see, they do the entire uh, history of RBI baseball. Uh, let's see, the original was 1987 for the Versus system, then 88 for the Nintendo, the NES, um, then 1990 for the NES, 1991 for the Commodore 64 and Amiga, RBI Baseball 3 was only for the Genesis and the NES in 1991, then they switched to just the Genesis for the next several years, uh, RBI Baseball 4 was for the Genesis, that was 92, RBI Baseball 93 was the Genesis, 94 was the Genesis and the Game Gear, Super RBI Baseball was for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in 1995, and also RBI Baseball 95 was for the 32X. And then they went to the modern series where they um, they uh, revived the franchise. They started in 2014. Uh, the PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, Xbox One, Android, iOS, and Steam. Uh, 2015, uh, PS4, Xbox One, Android, iOS, and Steam again. Uh, the same for 2016. Uh, 2016 was also the same, but they also included the uh, Nintendo Switch. Uh, 2018 was the same. 2019 was the same. Uh, 2020 was still the same. And so was 2021, and I believe that was the last version of that was the last version of the game. And that's pretty much it. They're talking about uh, the reception of the revised, the revived franchise starting in 2014. So I'm just going to leave that alone. Okay. Uh, my experiences with it. Uh, my experiences were much more in depth with this game once I discovered emulation. Though, like I said, though my first games, plays with this game were in a bowling alley across the street from the CVS uh, that I worked at at the time. Uh, being a Yankee fan since the age of seven years old, I naturally st started playing that game by taking that team. I had a lot of fun blasting home runs with that murderer's row of players, but I could easily lose to a team like the St. Louis Cardinals, who had Lou Brock leading off. It was bad enough that he, along with Ricky Henderson and Vince Coleman, were the fastest players in the game and could give you fits if they got on base and could score on base hits if he got on second base, and he would because if he hit a single... He could hit infield hits, he could hit base hits, but he could also hit for power. He could, If you left the ball over the plate, he could jack it out of the yard really easily. Um, but of course, if you don't score in the top half of the inning and that happens, your game is immediately over. That's one of the things I forgot to mention. Um, if you do not, you, you are at bat in the first half of the inning... And if you don't score any runs and you go to the bottom half of the inning and the computer scores one run, the game is over. <laughs> you know, kind of harsh, but, you know, that motivated you to get runs across, that's for sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, when I got into emulation years and years later, I found out that I had more fun playing with the Atlanta Braves. Not only did they have, have my idol Hank Aaron on the team, may rest in peace, but they also had a good blend of speed, power, pitching, and hitting. Uh, I learned how to get the CPU to strike out a lot, and if I was hitting a ball out, I could skunk the CPU 10 to 0 on one, maybe two credits. Uh, this game is a great combination of the original Nintendo Baseball and SNK's Wonderful Baseball Stars. Uh, it's a welcome change of pace from the shooters and beat-em-ups I usually play when I fire up my emulator. 
and that's the truth. Because <laughs> that's what I usually play, but sometimes I just want to have a little fun and relax, although the game can be frustrating, let me tell you that. But anyway, uh, that's our experience for RBA Baseball, so let's immediately pivot into Time for Some Strategy. Okay, time for some strategy. First things first, you have you start in the top half of the inning, so that means you have to learn how to hit, and sometimes that's not so simple or easy. Um, even though Wikipedia says that the game is not based off of the statistics for the players, I think they are. Um, because I find that the higher batting average that a player has the more likely, of course, you are to get hits. Um, you know, I've played with... I've played the Boston Red Sox where they had um, Ted Williams in the roster and also uh, Rogers Hornsby on the St. Louis Cardinals. Both of those players hit 400 um, and in a season in their careers, and they have the highest batting averages in the game. They get hits a lot more often than more other players do, but it still requires you to position your player correctly in the batter's box um what works for me is to move the batter a little bit up and a little bit away from the pitcher you know or away from the plate that means if you know if most of the batters the majority of batters in rbi baseball are right-handed although some have lefties too as a matter of fact i think the new york yankees have like three or four lefties in their lineup but i digress um Usually you usually you move you tap the joystick up to once or twice to move your player up a little bit and then tap to the left or the right depending on whether your player is right-handed or left-handed and you want to move away from the plate just a little bit and I usually find that if the computer pitcher leaves the ball over the plate if you swing and you make contact at the right time you will get a base hit or depending on you know the power level, power hitting level, I should say, of the player, you could also hit a home run. And by using that little tap up twice and tap left or right once, that usually gets me base hits and home runs. Uh, you pay attention to the pitcher's positioning as it can tip you off to where's he, where he's going to throw the ball. If it's inside and it looks like it's going to clip the plate for a strike, move your batter towards the outside, away from the plate, and swing the bat. Um, and of course the opposite for outside pitches, if it starts inside or at the middle of the plate and starts going, uh, away from you, move towards the plate and swing the bat. Of course, there are some pitches that the pitchers make are, that are balls. And no matter how often you swing at them, you're going to miss. So you have to really keep an eye on where the ball is going. If it looks like it's going to clip any part of the plate, you have to swing at it. That's just how it is. Um, let's see. Sometimes the players will throw junk pitches, meaning that it will be a very slow pitch, but it will drop to the ground just before it crosses the plate and trying to get you to swing and miss. 
they will not always throw strikes in another attempt to get you to chase bad pitches. That's a bad habit of mine. <laughs> I will chase bad pitches sometimes. Um, also, at the, as the innings go on, as I said in the previous sec- segment, the pitchers will get tired, and that means the pitcher has five, maybe six innings of pitching in him tops. Uh, you pay attention to the velocity of the pitches. When the velocity goes down, it's a good time to get aggressive when you're hitting or to hit start and call to the bullpen to make a pitching change. Now, for pitching, the key to it, the pitching is the way to make your game last, especially when you're facing the heart of the opposing team's order because every team has players, has Hall of Fame level players in them. Uh, in the three, four, five, and six slots, uh, most they can pretty much crush the ball, and sometimes even the seventh or in eighth slots as well. Um, the only one that's more exception to the rule, but that's more because they are a more a uh, hitting and running team, is the Houston Astros. They don't have like a lot of home run hitters uh, on the Astros, but they can all hit the ball, and most of them can run really well. So that's where good base running comes in. But I digress. The best way to do this, at least for me, is to have a pitcher that has average velocity. So just the um, average pitch, because uh, by pushing up on the control stick when you're pitching, that causes the pitcher to throw a junk pitch or change up, which is really slow um, compared to like his fastball when you pull down on the stick and you hit and you pitch the ball. That's his fastball. Um, I usually don't throw a lot of fastballs in the game because you don't have any control over them, really. Um, The best thing to do is to use the uh, neutral position on the stick and just pitch the ball and use what I call the out-in-out technique. That I developed when I first started playing Baseball Stars for the NES. Um, What? Oh, goodness. When did I start playing that game? I can't remember, um, but it's something I adopted from when I played Baseball Stars with a bunch of guys at the uh, Nintendo kiosk in like 1989 or 1990, and when I started playing Baseball Star, I mean, when I started playing RBI Baseball, I adapted this technique, so basically it's it works like this. Now, t- for a right-handed pitcher... You should position your pitcher on the pitching mound all the way to the left. And for a lefty, you put him all the way to the right. Uh, The first pitch should be able to come down, and as soon as the ball is released, you start moving, you move the joystick to the right for a right-hand pitcher or to the left for a left-hand pitcher to make the ball curve. And it, it requires a lot of practice and a lot of trial and error, but... Usually you can, if you're playing against the computer, I'd say probably like 19 times out of 20, if you pitch the ball starting, if you're a right-hand pitcher, let's just use this for an example, and it's coming down and you curve it as it's coming in, you want to make sure the ball at the very least clips the uh, inside part of the plate. Uh, as it's going as it's going towards the hitter if he's left-handed or going away from him if he's right-handed um that's the in that's the in technique um the out technique is the exact opposite um if you pitch the first ball and he swings and misses for a strike okay he's probably looking for the inside pitch again so this time you use the out technique which means 
when you um, the way I like to do it is once again your right-handed pitchers on the left side of the mound and the, the walls pitched and you start curving you start curving it towards the plate but then it's like you go you jam the control stick back to the left to make it go back outside now if you do it right it'll either clip if the uh, if the computer player takes the ball for takes the pitch it'll clip the outside corner for another strike or he will try to move all the way inside and try to hit it and that's why you just want to go 1 2 with the stick and hold it to the left to get it to curve away from him so he'll either swing and miss it or if you've got enough control it'll hit the outside corner then of course the in the third the third in is the same as the first because as you'll notice when you pitch the ball wherever the a computer player moves the batter he that batter will stay there for the next pitch so that can set you up for uh, another inside uh, pitch technique and he'll swing and miss it and strike three and he's out and that's the best way to do it pitching um sometimes this doesn't work like i said 19 times out of 20 maybe 17 or 18 but there are some times where i'll be in a groove and i will start the start the inside pitch and the computer player will move completely in time with the movement of the pitch and swing the ball and at the very least get a base hit, but if he's a power hitter, he'll hit it right out of the park, which is annoying. <laughs> uh, fielding is a point uh, is important as well, especially when it comes to the faster players that you go up against. If you can't strike them out, it's imperative to get them to ground out or fly out. Um, otherwise, you'll see runners stealing bases and the batters behind them uh, swinging, you know, doing a hit and runs and some of them even bunting to get them over, get that player to either second or third base, where a base hit by the player behind them can actually score them. Um, like I said, if you did not score in the top of the inning, that will end your game immediately. Because if the CPU scores in the bottom of the inning, your game's over, like I said. Uh, in the case of a ground ball, you have to know where that ball is going and get the closest fielder to the ball to catch it if it's in the air or field it if it's on the ground and throw it to first base or maybe even to second to start a double play um this game like i said it requires a lot of strategy and a lot of being able to you know bend your pitches properly to get the computer strike out because that's the best way to keep them off the base paths and keep them from hitting the ball out of the park um even in this modern day with baseball games for gaming consoles like the show uh, this game is elegant in its simplicity and still requires timing and strategy, like I just said. Um, this is one of my favorite baseball games of all time, and I still play it in emulation today. I might just play it after I finish recording. We'll see. Okay, so that's the full rundown for versus RBI Baseball. Um, if you know of this game, you play it, you like it, hey, tell me about it. You got any strategies of your own when it comes to winning this game? Tell me. I'd like to know arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com okay let's see what we've got going on here we will go to arcade review
Arcade Review, the news corner, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay, as I've said, uh, whenever this segment comes up, I rate an arcade by five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Um, each one of these criteria is rated one to ten, with half points coming into play. Um, for sake of brevity, I'm not going to go into each criteria's description. Go back to a few, uh, previous episode um, if you want to know what each criteria means as in relation to this review. Okay, um, you add all these scores up and you divide them by five, and you come up with a final with a final score. So let's get right to it. Okay, location 8.5. Uh, the news corner was located at the intersection of Main and John Streets, you know, on the southeast corner in downtown Bridgeport. Uh, it was on the south side of the area, only a block from the Buck Station on John Street and two blocks from the train station, uh, which was, oh, I can't remember the name of the street it intersected with, but it was at the terminus of the eastern terminus of John Street. It was about half a mile from Interstate 95 and about a mile south of Route 8. Um, multiple bus routes ran right by the place, so it was very easy to get to, hence the high location score. Uh, selection, 7.0. While the News Corner never had a lot of games, at the most they had maybe six machines and five pinball machines, if I remember correctly, they did rotate machines in and out very frequently. They did tend to keep the ones uh, that made the most money longer. So because of those things, I give it you know, above average marks. Um, they also had the rare game no other place that I knew of in my area uh, had, um, including a game I have not seen since I used to play it in about uh, 1988. I only hope that when I found, well, what game it was upon my return for Chicago. And in and actually, I did not. <laughs> Galloping Ghost did not have that game. I would know that game on sight. Um, but anyway, so I give it a 7.0, even though there weren't a lot of machines there, they would rotate them out. Uh, new ones would come in frequently, uh, ones that didn't make a lot of money or a lot of people were playing, they'd rotate those out, uh, fairly quickly. Uh, so yes, 7.0 I think is fair. Uh, ambiance, a 6.0. Now this is a tricky one because while there wasn't any art or music playing or anything like that, you had hundreds of books, magazines, comics, and newspapers for perusal. Those staff would get on you if you were just reading and not buying anything. <laughs> I remember several times the guy behind the register saying, This ain't a library, kid. <laughs> um, and I think in 1982 or 83, they also had a video store rental in the adjacent storefront. Um, that was actually kind of cool. You know, because uh, the video rental thing was taking off in the early 80s, and they decided to jump on that, and they had a pretty good selection. Uh, so yeah, for that, I'll give the ambiance a 6. Um, functionality, I'll give a 6.5. Um, most of the games worked well, even though they looked pretty beat up, and they would take a lot of abuse from a lot of people, that's for sure. But when a game went down... Uh, it would take several weeks for it to get fixed, and if it couldn't be fixed or it needed, like, major servicing, they just basically took it off the floor, and it would come back at a later date. Um, and value, I'm going to give a straight five. 
as one might think, the news quarter ran on quarters back in the day. Almost every game they ever had on the floor was 25 cents, with the exception of Dragon's Lair and maybe one or two other games, which were 50 cents. Um, I originally took away a point in the rating because, as I've said, whenever I've talked about the news corner, the management jacked the difficulty level of the machines to the highest level, which was never good for me to learn how to play games there. Uh, the Defender, Robotron, and Ms. Pac-Man machines... Uh, that they would have on the floor were especially unforgiving. Um, I'm fairly certain that the ownership ever cared about making money from the games, duh. But then again, when you think about the other things that the, the News Corner had, like the snacks, drinks, magazines, and comic books, I think I have to put the point back. So I started with a five, then dropped it down to four, <laughs> then put it back up at five when, you know, I thought about things. So... You add all those together, average it out by 5, and you come up with a total score of 6.6. Alright, I know, this is not an arcade, but hey, it was an important place to play games. Um, throughout my childhood and teenage years, going into my 20s, anytime I was going someplace uh, or coming home by bus and I had the time and money, I was in here playing games all the time. Um, I can't even begin to count the number of times coming home from work or school or getting a haircut or coming home from a friend's house, dropping a quarter or two in this place, and not to mention getting so involved in playing games that I would miss my bus going home and having to figure out another bus to take that would put me within walking distance. <laughs> That's happened a lot, <laughs> whether I was coming home from work at CVS or coming home from the west side of town. Uh, where my friends were um, and getting involved in playing games and missing the last Main Street bus to go home, I'd have to take the 12 or the 6 bus, which would put me at the um, eastern terminal of my home street, and then I would have to walk like, you know, three quarters of a mile up the street to get to my house. If I took the Main Street bus, it was basically two blocks and I was home. So, yeah. <laughs> there were plenty of times where I did that. Not to mention there were a couple times where I had to take the Madison Avenue bus home and where it would drop me off closest to where I lived, I'd have to walk. Oh, God, I was what? I'd say probably about a mile, close to a mile, mile and a half maybe, from Madison Avenue over to Main Street and then the additional couple blocks to get home. So, yeah, <laughs> I did that a lot. Um, I've told stories about my scoring 100 points on double dribble on, on a single quarter, having to abandon a perfect game of Dragon's Lair, or playing games that I never saw anywhere else, and still haven't. Um, it was one of my main sources for when I was collecting comic books as well, so there's that. Um, the whole reason I put this place in arcade review in the first place was because after listening back to an on-the-road segment where I rambled on about gamers versus arcades and I really thought about it, I realized that the News Corner was just as important in my gaming life as any arcade I have been to, past, present, or future. Uh, they sometimes had games no other arcade or game room I ever went to had, and including one that I have not play found since playing, I think, in 88, like I said before, even if I have to dock them for the fact they put all their machines on maximum difficulty. And that's the news corner. Uh, one of my staples growing up as a child, as a teenager, and as a young adult. So, 
anybody listening out there who lived in Bridgeport back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, get a hold of me if you know what I'm talking about. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay, from there, let's go on to Home Systems. There is no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm a game. Clear the path! I'm going home! Okay, home systems. The Sega Dreamcast. Okay, now I'm going to say the my personal experience with it is rather limited, which you'll find out at the end of... Uh, all of the description I give from the Wikipedia page. The Dreamcast is a home video game console released by Sega on November 27th, 1998 in Japan, September 9th, 1999 in North America, and October 14th, 1999 in Europe. It was the first in the sixth generation of video game consoles preceding Sony's PlayStation 2, Nintendo's GameCube, and Microsoft's Xbox. The Dreamcast was Sega's final home console, with its dis- discontinuation in 2001 marking the end of the company's 18 years in the console market. In contrast to the expensive hardware of the unsuccessful Sega Saturn, the Dreamcast was designed with, to reduce costs with off-the-shelf components, including a Hitachi SH4 CPU and an NEC PowerVR2 GPU. Released in Japan to a subdued reception, the Dreamcast enjoyed a successful U.S. launch backed by a large marketing campaign, but interest steadily declined as Sony built hype for its then-upcoming PlayStation 2. Sales did not meet Sega's expectations despite several price cuts, and the company continued to incur significant financial losses. After a change in leadership, Sega discontinued the Dreamcast on March 31st, 2001, withdrawing from the console business and restructuring itself as a third-party publisher. In total, 9.13 million Dreamcast units were sold worldwide. Although the Dreamcast had a short lifespan and limited third-party support, reviewers have considered the console ahead of its time. Yeah, that I'll agree with. Its library contained many games considered innovative, including Crazy Taxi, Jet Set Radio, Fantasy Star Online, and Shenmue, as well as high-quality ports from Sega's Naomi arcade system board. The Sega was also the first console to include a built-in modular modem for internet access and online play. Okay, the history. Uh, Let's see, released in 1988, the Sega Genesis, known as the Mega Drive in most countries outside North America, was Sega's entry into the fourth generation of video game consoles. Selling 30.75 million units worldwide, the Genesis was the most successful console Sega ever released. The successor to the Genesis, the Sega Saturn, was released in Japan in 1994. The Saturn was a CD-ROM-based console that displayed both 2D and 3D computer graphics, but its complex dual-CPU architecture made it more difficult to program than its chief competitor, the Sony PlayStation. Uh, Although the Saturn debuted before the PlayStation in both Japan and the United States, its surprise U.S. launch, which came four months earlier than originally scheduled, was marred by the lack of distribution, which remained a continuing problem for the system. Moreover, Sega's early release was undermined by Sony's simultaneous announcement that the PlayStation would retail for $299 US, compared to the Saturn's initial price of $399. 
Nintendo's long delay in releasing a competing 3D console and the damage done to Sega's reputation by poorly supported add-ons for the Genesis, particularly the Sega 32X, allowed Sony to establish a foothold in the market. The PlayStation was immediately successful in the U.S., part, in part due to a massive advertising campaign and strong third-party support engendered by Sony's excellent development tools and a liberal $10 licensing fee. Sony's success was further aided by a price war in which Sega lowered the price to sa- of the Saturn from $399 to $299, then down to $199 to set- match the price of the PlayStation, even though Saturn hardware was more expensive to manufacture and the PlayStation had a larger software library. Losses on the Saturn hardware contributed to Sega's financial problems, which saw the company's revenue decline between 1992 and 1995 as part of an industry-wide slowdown. Furthermore, Sega's focus on the Saturn over the Genesis prevented it from fully capitalizing on the continued strength of the 16-bit market. Yeah, that's true. The 16 the 16-bit system was not done yet. <laughs> Soon, but not yet. Okay. Due to long-standing disagreements with Sega of Japan, Sega of America CEO Tom Kalinske became less interested in his position. On July 16, 1996, Sega announced that Shoichiro Irimajiri uh, had been po- appointed chairman and CEO of Sega of America, while Kalinsky would be leaving Sega after September 30th of that year. Sega also announced that Sega Enterprises co-founder David Rosen and Sega of Japan CEO Hayao Nakayama had resigned for their positions as chairman and co-chairman of Sega of America, though both men remained with the company. Bernie Stolar, a former executive at Sony Computer Entertainment of America, was named Sega of America's executive vi- vice president in charge of product development and third-party relations. Stolar did not support the Saturn due to his belief that the hardware was poorly designed and publicly announced at E3 1997 that, quote, the Saturn is not our future, end quote. After the launch of the Nintendo 64, sales of the Saturn and Sega's 32-bit software were sharply reduced. As of August 1997, Sony controlled 47% of the console market, Nintendo controlled 40%, and Sega only controlled 12%. Neither price cuts nor high-profile games were proving helpful to the Saturn's success. Due to the Saturn's poor performance in North America, Sega laid off 60 of its 200 employees in the fall of 1997. As a result of the company's deteriorating financial situation, Nakayama resigned as president of Sega in January of 1998 in favor of Iri Majiri. Uh, Stolar would subsequently accede to become CEO and president of Sega of America. Following five years of generally declining profits in the fiscal year ending March 31, 1998, Sega suffered its first parent and consolidated financial losses since its 1988 listing on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Due to a 54.8% decline in the consumer product sales, including a 75.4% decline overseas, wow. The company reported a consolidated net loss of 35.6 billion yen, or $269.8 million. Uh, Shortly before announcing its financial losses, Sega revealed that it was discontinuing the Saturn in North America with the goal of preparing for the launch of its successor. This decision effectively left the Western market without Sega games for over one year. Rumors about the upcoming Dreamcast, spread mainly by Sega itself, (laughs) that figures, uh, leaked to the public before the last Saturn games were released. Wow.
Okay. Uh, development. As early as 1995, reports surfaced that Sega would collaborate with Lockheed Martin, the 3DO company Matsushita, or Alliance Semiconductor, to create a new graphics processing unit, which conflicting accounts would said would be used for 64-bit Saturn II, or add-on peripheral. The development of the Dreamcast was wholly unrelated to this rumor project. In light of Saturn's poor market performance, Irimajiri decided to start looking outside of the company's internal hardware development division to create a new console. In 1997, Irimajiri enlisted the services of IBM's Tatsuo Yamamoto to lead an 11-man team to work on a secret hardware project in the United States, which was referred to as Black Belt. Accounts vary on how an internal team led by Hideki Sato also began development on the Dreamcast hardware. One account specifies that Sega of Japan tasked both teams, while another suggests that Sato was bothered by Irimajiri's choice to begin develop externally and chose to have his hardware de- team begin development. See, this is what I'm talking about. If you're not on the same page, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. This is not a good start to the uh, development of the Dreamcast, in my opinion. But let's continue. Uh, Sato and his group chose the Hitachi SH4 processor architecture and the VideoLogic Power VR2 graphics processor manufactured by NEC in the production of their main board, initially known as White Belt. This project was later codenamed Dural after the female metallic fighter from Sega's Virtual Fighter series, of course. Uh, Yamamoto's group opted to use the 3D FX Voodoo 2 and Voodoo Banshee graphics processors alongside a Motorola Power PC 603E central processing unit, but Sega management later asked them to use the SH4 chip. Both processors have been described as quote-unquote off-the-shelf components. In 1997, 3DFX began its IPO, and as a result of legal obligations, unveiled its contracts with Sega, including the development of the new console. This angered Sega of Japan executives, who eventually decided to use the Dural chipset and cut ties with 3DFX. See? (laughs) See? Uh, According to former Sega of America Vice President of Communications and former NEC brand manager Charles Bellafield, Presentations of games using the NEC solutions showcase the performance and low cost delivered by the SH4 and PowerVR architecture. He further stated that, quote, Sega's relationship with NEC, a Japanese company, probably made a difference in Sega's decision to adopt the Japanese team design, too, end quote. Stolar, on the other hand, quote, felt the U.S. version, the 3 d the 3D FX version should have been used. Japan wanted the Japanese version and Japan won, end quote. Yeah, that's that's that figures. Um, as a result, 3D FX filed a lawsuit against both Sega and NEC, claiming breach of contract, which would eventually be settled out of court. Uh, the choice to use the Power VR architecture concerned Electronic Arts, a longtime developer of Sega's consoles. EA had invested in 3D FX, was but was unfamiliar with the selected architecture, which was reportedly less powerful. As recounted by Shiro Hagiwara a general manager at Sega's hardware division, and Ian Oliver, the managing director of Sega's subsidiary Cross Products, the SH4 was chosen while it was still in development and following a lengthy deliberation process because it was the only available processor that could, quote, could adapt to 
deliver the 3D geometry and calculation performance necessary, end quote. By February 1998, Sega had renamed the Dural Katana after the Japanese sword, although certain hardware specifications such as random access memory were not yet finalized. Knowing that Sega, the Sega Saturn had been set back by its high production costs and complex hardware, Sega took a different approach with the Dreamcast. Like previous Sega consoles, the Dreamcast was designed around intelligent subsystems working in parallel with one another, but the selections of hardware were more in line with what was common in personal computers than video game consoles, reducing the system's cost. It also enabled software development to begin even before any development kits had been completed, as Sega informed developers that any game developed with a Pentium 2 200 would, in mind would run on the console. According to Damien McFerrin, the motherboard was a masterpiece of clean, uncluttered design and compatibility, end quote. Chinese economicist and future Sega.com CEO Brad Huang convinced Sega chairman Isao Okawa to include a modem with every Dreamcast despite significant opposition from Okawa's staff over the additional $15 cost per unit. To account for rapid changes in home data delivery, Sega designed the Dreamcast modem to be modular. The Sega selected the GD-ROM media format for the system. The GD-ROM, which was jointly developed by Sega and Yamaha Corporation, could be mass-produced at a similar price to a normal CD-ROM, thus avoiding the greater expense of DVD-ROM technology. As the GD-ROM can hold about 1 gigabyte of data, illegally copying Dreamcast games onto a 650 megabyte CD-ROM sometimes required the removal of certain game features, although this did not prevent copy of Dreamcast software. Microsoft developed a custom Dreamcast version of Windows CE with DirectX API and dynamic link libraries, making it easy to port PC games onto the platform, although programmers will ultimately favor Sega's development tools over those from Microsoft. Hmm. I wonder if this is where Microsoft started to get the idea for the Xbox. Hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Okay, to continue. Sega held a public competition to name its new system and considered over 5,000 different entries before choosing Dreamcast, a combination of the words Dream and Broadcast. According to Katsutoshi Iguchi, Japanese game developer Kenji Ino submitted, submitted the name and created the Dreamcast Spiral logo, but this claim has not been verified by Sega. The Dreamcast startup sound was composed by the Japanese musician Ryuichi Sakamoto. Because the Saturn had tarnished Sega's reputation, the company planned to remove its name from the console entirely and establish a new gaming brand similar to Sony's PlayStation, but Irimajiri's management team ultimately decided to retain Sega's logo on the Dreamcast's exterior. Sega spent 50 to $80 million US on hardware development, 150 to $200 million on software development, and $300 million on worldwide promotion, a sum which Irimajiri, a former Honda executive, humorously compared to the investments required to design new automobiles. Yeah, we're talking, what, 500 almost $600 million at the end of it? Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move to the launch. Despite taking massive losses on the Saturn, including a 75% drop in half-year profits just before the Japanese launch of the Dreamcast, Sega felt confident about its new system. The Dreamcast attracted significant interest and drew many pre-orders. Sega announced that Sonic Adventure, the next game starring company mascots Sonic the Hedgehog, 
would arrive in time for the Dreamcast launch and promoted the game with large-scale public demonstration at Tokyo Kokusai Forum Hall. However, Sega could not achieve its shipping goals for the Dreamcast Japanese launch due to a shortage of power VR chipsets caused by a high failure rate in the manufacturing process. As more than half of its limited stock had been pre-ordered, Sega stopped stopped pre-orders in Japan. On November 27, 1998, the Sega Dreamcast launched in Japan at a price of $20,000 yen, uh, and the entire stock sold out by the end of the day. However, of the four games available at launch, only one, a port of Virtua Fighter 3, the most successful arcade game Sega ever released in Japan, sold well. Sega estimated that another two to 300,000 Dreamcast units could have been sold with, with sufficient supply. Keen Dreamcast games Sonic Adventure and Sega Rally Championship 2, which had been delayed, arrived in the following weeks, but sales continued to be slower than expected. Irimajiri hoped to sell over 1 million Dreamcast units in Japan by February of 99, but less than 900,000 were sold, undermining Sega's attempts to build a sufficient installed base to ensure the Dreamcast survival after the arrival of competition from other manufacturers. There were reports of disappointed Japanese consumers returning their Dreamcasts and using the refund to purchase additional PlayStation software. Oh, wow. Jeez, that, that hurts. Uh, C-Man, released in July 1999, was considered the Dreamcast's first major hit in Japan. Prior to the Western launch, Sega reduced the price of the Dreamcast to 19,900 yen, effectively making the hardware unprofitable but increasing sales. The price reduction and the release of Namco's Soul Calibur helped to gain Sega 17% on its shares. Before the Dreamcast release, Sega was dealt a blow when EA, the largest third-party video game publisher, announced that it would not develop games for the system. EA Chief Creative Officer Bing Gordon said that Sega, quote, had flip-flopped on the configuration over whether to include a modem and picking the then-unknown PowerVR over an established player like 3DFX, and because the Dreamcast became the system that EA developers least wanted to work on in the history of systems at EA, that was pretty much it. In the end, it felt like Sega was not acting like a competent hardware company, end quote. Ouch. (laughs) That hurt. Gordon also claimed, quote, Sega couldn't afford to give us the same kind of license that EA has had over the last five years, end quote. Stolar had a different account of the breakdown in negotiations with EA, recalling that EA president Larry Probst specifically wanted, quote, exclusive rights to be the only sports brand on the Dreamcast, end quote, which Stolar could not accept due to Sega's recent $10 million purchase of sports game developer Visual Concepts. While EA's Madden NFL series did have established brand power, Stolar regarded the NFL 2 game as far superior and providing a, quote, breakthrough experience to launch the Dreamcast. Uh, While the Dreamcast would have none of EA's popular sports games, Sega sports games developed mainly by visual concepts helped to fill that void. Interesting. Very interesting. And yeah, at the time, or at least back in 1995, NFL 2K was a lot better than Madden. It's just the truth. Okay. To continue, working closely with Midway Games, which developed four launch games for the system and taking advantage of the 10 months following the Dreamcast launch in Japan, Sega of America worked to ensure a more successful U.S. launch with a minimum of 15 launch games. 
Despite lingering bitterness over the Saturn's early release, Stolar successfully managed to repair relations with major U.S. retailers with whom Sega's pre-sold 300,000 Dreamcast units. In addition, a pre-launch promotion enabled consumers to rent the system for Hollywood Video in the months preceding its September launch. That's smart. That's actually really smart. Uh, Sega of America Senior Vice President of Marketing, Peter Moore, a fan of the attitude previously associated with Sega's brand, worked at Foot, Conan Building, and Access Communications to develop the It's Thinking campaign of 15-second television commercials, which emphasized the Dreamcast's hardware power. According to Moore, quote, We needed to create something that would really intrigue consumers, somewhat apologize for the past, but invoke all the things we loved about Sega primarily from the Genesis days, end quote. That's what they should have done. They should have stuck to that. Um, On August 11th, Sega of America confirmed that Stolar had been fired, leaving more to direct the launch. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. Okay, uh, the Dreamcast launched in North America on September 9th, 1999 at a price of $199, which Sega's marketing dubbed $9999 for $199. <laughs> 18 launch games were available for the Dreamcast in the U.S. Uh, Sega set a new sales record by selling 225,132 Dreamcast units in 24 hours, earning the company $98.4 million in what more called, quote, the biggest 24 hours in entertainment retail history, end quote. <laughs> some of some of this hyperbole, man, I swear. Anyway, uh, within two weeks, U.S. Dreamcast sales exceeded 500,000. By Christmas, Sega held 31% of the North American video game market share. Significant launch games included Sonic Adventure, Soul Calibur, an arcade fighting game graphically enhanced for the system that went on to sell 1 million units, and visual concepts, high-quality football simulation, NFL 2K. On November 4th, Sega announced that it sold over 1 million Dreamcast units. Nevertheless, the launch was marred by a glitch at one of Sega's manufacturing plants, which produced defective GD-ROMs. Sega released the Dreamcast in Europe on October 14, 1999, at a price of 200 British pounds sterling. Uh, by November 24, 400,000 consoles had been sold in Europe. By Christmas of 99, Sega of Europe reported selling 500,000 units, placing it six months ahead of schedule. Sales did not continue at this pace, and by October of 2000, Sega had sold only about 1 million units in Europe. As part of Sega's promotion of the Dreamcast in Europe, the company sponsored four European football clubs, Arsenal FC, AS Saint-Étienne, US Sampdoria, and Deportivo de la Corona. That's uh, football teams in England, France, Italy, and Spain, respectively. Sorry if I butchered the names. Um, Moving on. Meanwhile, through regional distributor Ozasoft, the Dreamcast went on sale in Australia and New Zealand on November 30th of 1999 at a price of 499 Australian dollars. The launch had been delayed from its original target of the end of September due to internet compatibility and launch title availability issues, and then delayed again from the revised date of October 25th for various reasons. Despite the extra time given from the delays, there were severe issues at launch. Besides a severe shortage of the consoles themselves, only six of the 30 planned launch titles for the region were available for purchase on day one, with no first-party software included. 
that's a big mistake. Uh, and additional peripherals were non-existent on store shelves. Yeah, that's a that's bad. Aussiesoft representative Steve O'Leary, in a statement released the same day, explained that the Australian Customs Service had impounded virtually all supplied launch software, including demo discs, to the previous week due to insufficient labeling of their country of origin. Wow, how does that even happen? Uh, Ozisoft had received them only two days before launch, resulting in very few titles that were cataloged and prepared for shipment in time. O'Leary also noted that the Dreamcast's high demand in other markets resulted in few quantities of peripherals that were allotted for the region. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Further complicating matters was the lack of an internet disk due to localization issues and delays in securing an ISP contract with the latter done through Telstra just the day before launch. It was not until March of 2000 that the online component was ready, at which point Ozisoft sent out the necessary software to users that it sent in filled out reply paid card included with the console. Poor launch, combined with a minuscule advertising campaign and a high price point, translated to lackluster sales in Australia. Two large retail chains there reported a combined total of 13 console sales over the first few days after launch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, moving to the competition. Though the Dreamcast launch had been successful, Sony still held 60% of the overall video game market share in North America with the PlayStation at the end of 1999. On March 2nd, 99, in what one report called a, quote, highly publicized vaporware-like announcement, Sony revealed the first details of its next-generation PlayStation, which Ken Kuraragi claimed that would allow video games to convey unprecedented emotions. <laughs> wow. Uh, the center of Sony's marketing plan and the upcoming PlayStation 2 itself was a new CPU clocked to 294 megahertz. <laughs> which is funny considering most how many gigahertz most processors go at now but it's funny uh jo <laughs> to continue um jointly developed by sony and toshiba the emotion engine which kuraragi announced would uh feature a graphics processor with one one thousand times more bandwidth than contemporary pc graphics processors and a floating point calculation performance of 6.2 gigaflops rivaling most supercomputers oh geez ken <laughs> sony which invested 1.2 billion dollars in two large-scale integration semiconductor fabrication plants to manufacture the playstation 2's emotion engine and graphics synthesizer designed the machine to push more raw polygons than any video game console in history sony claimed the playstation 2 could render 75 million raw polygons per second with absolutely no effects and 38 million without accounting for features such as textures artificial tell intelligence or physics with such effects sony estimated the playstation 2 could render 7.5 to 6 16 million polygons per second whereas independent estimated <laughs> estimates range from 3 million to 20 million compared to Sega's estimates of more than 3 million to 6 million for the Dreamcast. So the system would also utilize the DVD-ROM format, which could hold substantially more data than Dreamcast GD-ROM format. Because it could connect to the internet while playing movies, music, and video games, Sony hyped the PlayStation 2 as the future of home entertainment, and they weren't wrong. <laughs> Uh, rumors spread that the PlayStation 2 was a supercomputer capable of guiding missiles and displaying Toy Story-quality graphics, while Kuderagi boasted its online capabilities and would give consumer, consumers the ability to check into the Matrix. 
my god. I'm sorry, folks. You just can't make this stuff up. Oh my god. Okay, to continue. Uh, in addition, Sony emphasized the PlayStation 2 will be backwards compatible with hundreds of popular PlayStation games, which was a massive, massive, massive thing. Let me tell you. To continue. Sony's specifications appeared to render the Dreamcast obsolete within months before its U.S. launch, although reports later emerged that the PlayStation 2 was not as powerful as expected and distinctly difficult to program games for. The same year, Nintendo also announced its next-generation console would meet or exceed anything on the market, and Microsoft began developing its own console. <laughs> There's the Xbox. I thought so. Okay. Sega's initial momentum proved fleeting as U.S. Dreamcast sales, which exceeded 1.5 million at the end of 1999, began to decline as early as January of 2000. Poor Japanese sales contributed to Sega's 42.88 billion yen consolidated net loss in the fiscal year ending March 2000, which followed a similar loss of 42.881 billion the previous year and marks Sega's third consecutive annual loss. 42.88 is 404 million dollars in US dollars uh, back in those days. Uh, let's see, although Sega's overall sales for the term increased 27.4% and Dreamcast sales in North America and Europe greatly exceeded the company's expectations, this increase in sales coincided with a decrease in profitability due to the investments required to launch the Dreamcast in Western markets and poor software sales in Japan. At the same time, increasingly poor market conditions uh, reduced the profitability of Sega's Japanese arcade business, prompting prompting the company to close 246 locations. Knowing that, quote, they have to fish where the fish are biting, Sega of America President Peter Moore, who assumed his position after Stolar had been fired, and Sega of Japan's developers focused on the U.S. market to prepare for the up on upcoming launch of the PS2. To that end, Sega of America launched its own internet service provider, Sega.com, led by CEO Brad Huang. Uh, on September 7th of 2000, Sega.com launched SegaNet, the Dreamcast internet gaming service, at a subscription price of $21.95 per month. Although Sega previously released only one Dreamcast game in the U.S. that featured online multiplayer, Choo Choo Rocket, which was a puzzle game developed by Sonic Team, the launch of SegaNet, which allowed users to chat, send email, and surf the web, combined with NFL 2K1, a football game, including a robust online component, was intended to increase demand for the Dreamcast in the U.S. market. The service would later support games including Bomberman Online, Quake 3 Arena, and Unreal Tournament. The September 7th launch coincided with a new advertising campaign to promote SegaNet, including via the MTV Music Awards on the, of the same day, which Sega sponsored for the second consecutive year. Sega employed aggressive pricing strategies with relation to online gaming. In Japan, every Dreamcast sold included a free year of internet access, which Okawa personally paid for. Wow. Uh, prior to the launch of SegaNet, Sega had already offered a $200 rebate to any Dreamcast owner who purchased two years of internet access from Sega.com. To increase SegaNet's appeal in the U.S., Sega dropped the price of the Dreamcast to $149 compared to the PS2 U.S. launch price of $299 and offered a rebate for the full $149 price of a Dreamcast and a free Dreamcast keyboard with every 18-month SegaNet subscription. Whew. Wow. 
Uh, Moore stated that the Dreamcast would need to sell 5 million units in the U.S. by the end of 2000 to re uh, remain a viable platform, but Sega ultimately fell short of this goal with some 3 million units sold. Moreover, Sega's attempt to spur increased Dreamcast sales through lower prices and cash rebates caused escalating financial losses. In, instead of an expected profit for the six months ending September 2000, Sega posted a 17.98 billion yen loss, which is $163.11 million, with the company projecting a year-end loss of 26.3 billion yen. This estimate was more than double to 58.3 billion yen. Good lord. And in March 2001, Sega posted a consolidated net loss of 51.7 billion yen, which is $417.5 million. While the PS2's October 26 US launch was marred by shortages, this did not benefit the Dreamcast as much as expected. Uh, many consumers continued to wait for PS2, while the PS1, a remodeled version of the original PlayStation, was the best-selling console in the U.S. at the start of the 2000 holiday season. According to Moore, quote, The PlayStation 2 effect that we were relying upon did not work for us. People will hang on for as long as possible. What effectively happened is the P PlayStation 2 lack of avail availability froze the marketplace, end quote. Eventually, Sony and Nintendo held, held 50 and 35% of the U.S. video game market, respectively, while Sega held only 15%. According to Belfield, Dreamcast software sold at an 8 to 1 ratio with the hardware, but this ratio, quote, on a small install base didn't give us the revenue to keep the platform viable in the medium to long term, end quote. Okay, and finally, the decline. On May 22nd of 2000, Okawa replaced Irimajiri as president of Sega. Okawa had a long advocated that Sega abandon the console business. His sentiments were not unique. Sega co-founder David Rosen had, quote, always felt it was a bit of a folly for them to be limiting their potential to Sega hardware, end quote, and Starlar had previously suggested Sega should have sold their company to Microsoft. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, let's see. In September of 2000, in a meeting with Sega's Japanese executive and the heads of companies, the company's major Japanese game development studios, Moore and Belfield recommended that Sega abandon its console business and focus on software, prompting the studio heads to walk out. <laughs> Wow. Nevertheless, on January 31st, 2001, Sega announced the discontinuation of the Dreamcast after March 31st and the restructuring of the company as a platform-agnostic third-party developer. The decision was Moore's. Sega also announced a Dreamcast price reduction to $99 to eliminate its unsold inventory, which was estimated 930,000 units as of April 2001. After a further reduction to $79, the Dreamcast was cleared out of stores at $49.95. Wow, I should have picked one up. <laughs> uh, the final Dreamcast unit manufactured was autographed by the heads of all nine of Sega's internal game development studios, as well as the head of Visual Concepts and Wave Master, uh, and given away with 55 first-party Dreamcast games through a competition organized by GamePro Magazine. Okawa, who had previously loaned Sega $500 million in the summer of 1999, died on March 16, 2001. Shortly before his death, he forgave Sega's debts to him and returned his $695 million worth of Sega and CSK stock, helping the company survive the third-party transition. 
as part of this restructuring, nearly one-third of Sega's, to Sega's Tokyo workforce was laid off in 2001. 9.13 million Dreamcast units were sold worldwide. After the Dreamcast's dis discontinuation, commercial games were still developed and released for the system, particularly in Japan. In the United States, game releases continued until the first half, until the end of the first half of 2002. Uh, Sega of Japan continued to repair Dreamcast units until 2007. As of 2014, the console is still supported through various MILCD independent releases. After five consecutive years of financial losses, Sega finally posted a profit for the fiscal year ending March 2003. Reasons cited for the failure of the Dreamcast include hype for the PS2, a lack of support from EA and Squaresoft, considered the most popular third parties in the US and Japan respectively, disagreement among Sega executives over the company's future, and Okawa's lack of commitment to the product. Sega's lack of advertising money, with Belfield doubting that Sega spent even, quote, half, end quote, of the $100 million that it had pledged to promote the Dreamcast in the US, that the market was not yet ready for online gaming. Sega's focus on hardcore gamers over the mainstream consumer and poor timing. Perhaps the most frequently cited reason is the damage to Sega's reputation caused by several previously poorly supported Sega platforms. Writing for GamePro, Blake Snow stated, quote, the, the much-beloved console launched years ahead of the competition but ultimately struggled to s shed the negative reputation Sega had gained during the Saturn, Sega 32X, and Sega CD days. As a result, casual gamers and jaded third-party developers doubted Sega's ability to deliver. End quote. Ouch. Eurogamer's Dan Whitehead noted that the wait-and-see approach of consumers and the lack of support from EA were symptoms rather the cause of Sega's decline, concluding, quote, Sega's misadventures during the 1990s have left both gamers and publishers wary of a new, any new platform bearing its name, end quote. According to 1UP.com's Jeremy Parrish, quote, while it would be easy to point an accusatory finger at Sony and blame them for killing the Dreamcast by overselling the PS2, there's a certain level of intellectual dishonesty in such a stance. Sega's poor U.S. support for hardware like the Sega CD, the 32X, and Saturn made the gamers gun-shy. Many consumers felt burned after investing in expensive Sega machines and finding the resulting libraries comparatively lacking. End quote. Whew. Yeah, that's pretty harsh, but... It's true. Uh, let's see. The announcement of Sega's third-party transition was met with widespread enthusiasm. According to IGN's Travis Foz, quote, Sega was a creatively fertile company with a rapidly expanding stable of properties to draw from. It seemed like they were in a perfect position to start a new life as a developer and publisher, end quote. Former Working Designs president Victor Ireland, quote, wrote, quote, it's actually a good thing because now Sega will survive doing what they do best, software, end quote. The staff of Newsweek remarked, quote, from Sonic to Shenmue, Sega's programmers have produced some of the most engaging experiences in, of interactive media. Unshackled by a struggling console platform, this pl platoon of world-class software developers can do what they do best for any machine on the market, end quote. Rosen predicted, quote, they have the potential to catch electronic arts, end quote. <laughs> Interesting. Game Informer, commenting on Sega's tendency to produce underappreciated cult classics, stated, quote, Let us rejoice in the fact that Sega is making games equally among the current console crops so that history will not repeat itself, end quote. 
Wow. <laughs> Jeez. And they go into the hardware, accessories, the game library, and so forth and so on. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's do the legacy, and then we'll be finished. Okay. In December 1999, Next Generation rated the Dreamcast 4 out of 5 stars and stated, quote, If you want the most powerful system available now, showcasing the best graphics at a reasonable price, this system is for you, end quote. However, Next Generation rated the Dreamcast Future Prognosis as 3 stars out of 5 in the same article, noting that Sony would ship a superior hardware product than the PlayStation 2 in the next year, and that Nintendo had said it would do the same with the GameCube. At the beginning of 2000, Electronic Gaming Monthly had five reviewers score the Dreamcast 8 8.5, 8.5, 8.5, 8.0, 9, and 9.0 out of 10 points. By 2001, the reviewers for EGM gave the Dreamcast scores 4 9s and a 9.5 out of 10. Business Week recognized the Dreamcast as one of the best products of 1999. By 2009, IGM named the Dreamcast the 8th greatest video game console of all time, giving credit to the innovations and software for the system. According to IGM, quote, The Dreamcast was the first console to incorporate a built-in modem for online play, and while the networking lacked the polish and refinement of its, of its successors, it was the first time users could seamlessly power on and play with users around the globe, end quote. In 2010, PC Magazine's Jeffrey L. Wilson named the Dreamcast the greatest video game console, emphasizing that the system was, quote, gone too soon, end quote. Disagreement, Jeffrey. Big time disagreement. But let's continue. In 2013, Edge named the Dreamcast the 10th best console of the last 20 years, highlighting innovations that it added to console video gaming, including in-game video chat, downloadable content, and second screen technology for the use of VMUs. Edge explained the system's poor performance by stating, quote, Sega's console was undoubtedly ahead of its time and it suffered at retail for that reason, but its influence can still be felt today, end quote. Writing in 1001 Video Games You Must Play Before You Die, Duncan Harris noted, quote, One of the reasons that older gamers mourned the loss of the Dreamcast was that it signaled the demise of the arcade gaming culture. Sega's console gave hope that things were not about to change for the worse and that the tenants of fast fun and bright, attractive graphics were not about to sink into a brown and green bog of realistic war games, end quote. What? Mm, okay. I'll disagree with that, but let's continue. Uh, Parrish, writing for U.S. Gamer, contrasted the Dreamcast diverse library with the, quote, suffering sense of conservatism, end quote, that pervaded the gaming industry in the following decade. Dan White, head of Eurogamer, discussing the Dreamcast portrayal as a, quote, small, square, white plastic JFK. <laughs> wow. Commented that the system's short lifespan may have, quote, sealed its reputation as one of the greatest consoles ever. I disagree with that, but let's continue. And he also said, nothing builds a cult like a tragic demise, end quote. <laughs> that I can agree with, but let's let's finish this off. And according to IGN's Travis Foz, quote, many hardware manufacturers have come and gone, but it's unlikely any will go out with half as much as classes Sega, end quote. Yeah, so that's the Dreamcast in a nutshell. <laughs> well, a rather large nutshell, but let's continue. Um, now, my experiences with the system were very limited. Uh, I only played it at my roommate's place of work or the brief time it was a demo system when I was working at Best Buy. 
Uh, people swear by this system to this day, but to me the system was too ambitious for Sega, who was trying, desperately trying to gain the ground they lost to Sony and would continue to lose once the PlayStation 2 came out. My opinion, of course. Um, the controllers were not good ones for regular games. It was too much of a departure from the Sega and Saturn 6-button controllers, which were very ergonomic and I still believe were the best controllers for any system. It did not have good third-party support for reasons that I just talked about. Uh, the system was not just a strikeout for Sega. It was a called third strike with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth. And that's my feelings on the Dreamcast. I mean, it had all the potential in the world, but Sega was operating from a negative. They weren't starting from zero. They were starting from, like... <laughs> They were starting from, like, negative 20 or something like that and trying to climb out of the hole. But while trying to climb out of the hole, they're dumping more and more money, you know, trying to make it easier for themselves. But the hole just kept getting deeper, and that's what ended up happening in Sega. I mean, it was a shock to me when I read that Sega was going um, going strictly uh, third-party software, although I understood why. Because, yeah, the Saturn was such a massive failure that they had to have the perfect launch supply and support for the next gaming system to basically eradicate the stink that the Saturn left. And I love the Saturn. I think that that had the possibility of being the best uh, to supplant the Genesis as the best console Sega ever made. But, they, you know, they couldn't get that done either. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, Sega is still actually churning out, uh, arcade, still churning out arcade games. I mean, we have Mario and Sonic at the Olympics, which came out in what, 2016, I think. And, uh, Sega World Rally Championship, which came out in 2019 at the arcade in Brighton. So they're still, they're still you know, they're still alive and kicking, even now we're in, the you know, deep into the 21st century now, so, you know, I mean, in the end, I think their decision to get out of the console market was a smart one, <laughs> and, you know, it took them, what, how long, what, two years, three years to turn a profit as a company once they did it, so yeah, that's the Dreamcast. Now, I know there are a lot of you out there who listen, who are diehard Dreamcast supporters and followers. I understand why. I'm you know everything I've said is just dry information. Everything I've read, and my own opinion is just through my own limited experiences with the console. You know, and you know yeah, there's an opinion in there, but you know history has borne that opinion out. Your personal feelings notwithstanding. But if you feel differently, okay, tell me why. Just be nice about it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, and finally we're going to go on the road. Uh, this segment I recorded on July 3rd of 2020. And let's get in the car and let's go for a drive. <music>
Hey folks, Brian here, and this is On The Road. It's Friday, July 3rd. Um, I'm, of course, in my car doing my job, and it's going to be a relatively short day today. Um, I was listening while I was finishing, while I was doing uh, the first half of my first run, um, I was listening to Vic Sage's uh, Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast, number 47, where he started talking about um, when he first, you know, was taken to an arcade with by his father, and it was an arcade called Games People Play. And he's going through his memories, and it just kind of floored me how similar our first experiences with arcades was. Now, if my math is correct, I think I'm two years older than Vic, at least one. I think Vic just turned 50, I'm 51, I'll be 52 in December. Um, but, and so my, when I started with uh, arcades, that was the summer, that was like the late spring, early summer, somewhere around there, I think it was summer of 78, it was literally just before Space Invaders hit, like by about a couple, by about a couple of months, and Vic was what, I think he said he was nine when he first went to games people play with his dad, and I was, if it was 78, yeah, I was nine, and it was just before Space Vaders, and he even said it himself that, um, I think he said he was playing games that were popular in arcades before Space Invaders, like Atari Football and Fire Truck and stuff like that, and that's where my origin started as well. I mean, I talked about it in episode one, um, or not, yeah, episode one and two pretty much, because first I went into, into Space Invaders, and then I told the story in episode two about um, how it all started. Um, and I'm just listening to him re, you know, re, uh, re regale his story, and I'm just like, wow. I mean, Vic and I, in some ways, could be brothers because we felt the exact same way about video games. And I know that our origin stories are nowhere in any, in no way unique because that was thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids. It starting right around 19, I'd say probably it really started in probably 76, but then when Space Invaders hit in 78, you know, it just took off, you know, like, you know, like the space shuttle. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I mean, it, and I, while I realize that it still amazes me that, you know, mine and Vic's origins and how we came to love uh, our, and our love for arcades and arcade games, how it started in such a similar way. Um, Vic grew up in a small town in Northwest Arkansas. I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is 
the, I think is the most populous city in Connecticut. I don't think it's the biggest as terms of, in terms of square mileage. I think Hartford still holds that, uh, that distinction, but Bridgeport was still the bigger city, you know, bigger than New Haven, bigger than Waterbury, slightly smaller than Hartford, you know, and of course it sported a reputation which it still has. <laughs> and I would almost, I would say deservedly so because of um, how, you know, who is in charge of that city right now. And yeah, there's just all kinds of screwed up things going on in my hometown and it makes me sad, so I won't go into it. But anyway, getting back to why I decided to, uh, record this segment. While Vic and I had very similar uh, origins as far as well, how we got our start with video games and arcades, um, where it kind of, where it separates is probably when, you know, probably that I always had a penchant when I was a young child, and I've said it in various episodes throughout the run of this podcast is that I had a tendency to go off by myself. If I was with, if I was with friends, I'd probably stay with them. But if I was with family and if I was bored, especially if I was bored when I was a child, I would just wander off and just explore because that's what I wanted to do, you know, I mean, for those who believe in astrology, my sign is Sagittarius and we're wanderers. You know, it, it just, it, we, it just is part of, uh, part of, uh, our makeup as people. We love to go on trips. We love to explore whether by ourselves or with friends or people of like mind. And that's just how it is. Almost every person I know who is a Sagittarius was like that. My mother was a Sagittarius and she was like that. She loved going on trips. And, you know, and she always, not always, I shouldn't say always, because yeah, there are a couple trips she went on that she could have taken me with her that she didn't. And it took me a long time to get over that. Uh, Case in point was a uh, trip that she went on to Montreal and I really wanted to go with her, but it was an adult trip. You know, I think it was her and like, oh my goodness, I want to say like, what, six or seven of her friends and they all basically just got together and pooled money and I think they, I don't know if they flew or if they took a train up there. I can't remember. It's kind of hazy. I think when she went on that trip, I think I was like, what, uh, 12 or 13, maybe a little older. I can't remember the exact timing. I just remember that. But anyway, my point is, is that, yeah, I'm a wanderer, which is why I like it as a career choice. I'm a professional driver because I get to drive around, even if it's on a pre-determined uh, route, 
Um, I get to drive around, I'm outside, I'm seeing things as I'm driving. I mean, as I speak, I'm literally driving down 10 mile road heading to South Lyon, Michigan to uh, go to a clinic to make a pickup. And you know, it's a hot summer day. The car uh, temperature gauge says it's 91 degrees outside and I think it's a little hotter than that, but that might just be the humidity. I mean, it's supposed to get up around, what, 93 or 94 today, but with the heat index, it's going to be close to 100. Um, but anyway, um, but yeah, that's just part of who I am. I've always been like this. I mean, if you talk to any of the members of my family from my mom's generation, you know, my, my aunts and uncles, um, they'll all tell you that you know, yeah, Brian always used to wander off. No matter where we were, no matter what we were doing, it, you know, if it wasn't something that interested him, he would just take off somewhere. Even if he just want, you know, wanted to go around, walk around the block. That's how I was. And I mean, you know, my mother has been gone for 16 years, or excuse me, 17 years, may she rest in peace. No, excuse me, it was 16. That's right, she passed away in 2004. Um, and may she rest in peace, you know, and she could burn your ears with stories <laughs> about how I would just take off and go places. You know, I was a little bit of a loner, not that much, at least not yet. Um, because I liked hanging out with my friends and, you know, if my, my cousins came over, I enjoyed playing with them. I mean, especially when I was a little older and I got like an Atari 2600. I mean, I remember when I first got that system in 1981, um, my Uncle Jimmy came to, uh, and rest in peace, Uncle Jimmy, um, he came with his two sons, my cousin Michael and my cousin Eric. And, you know, they, from the second they came in and after they made their greetings to my mom and my grandfather and my grandmother when she was alive, may she rest in peace, also my grandfather. Um, after, you know, they made, you know, they said their hellos, they would run up the stairs and run in my room, you know, you know, most of the time I was cool with it. Sometimes it was annoying. <laughs> and, you know, to my cousin, Mike, who might be listening, maybe, maybe not, you know, I'm sorry, Mike, but you know, it's true. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah, like I said, I would love, I loved hanging out with my friends, especially my best friend, Mark, who my son is named after, rest in peace. And... Um, and, you know, and I remember, you know, my, just me and Mark just getting together and saying, you know, where you want to go? Well, let's go over here. You know, let's, you know, check out these woods or, you know, let's go over to the terrace. The terrace was a, uh, was a, uh, uh, a co-op. It's a co-op now. It was more of a, um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the, 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 the thing, but yeah, it was basically low income housing. Um, it was about, 
I'd say probably about half a mile from where my house was. And, you know, we were told growing up not to go in there alone because yeah, it was, a, it was a rough place. It was really rough, but yeah, we would go there. We would, you know, go to the stores and we would do all this kind of stuff. But, you know, my point being is that, and this ties into, um, a, an on the road segment I did a little while ago. And by the time you guys hear this, it's probably, uh, attached to an episode about, you know, having adventures, but, um, the whole thing was, is that, yes, I was a wanderer and that's just how it was growing up, you know, I mean, and then when my addiction to video games really started taking hold of me, you know, I, my wanderings would be in a quest to find new and different video games slash game rooms slash arcades. And I think I've told a couple stories in this segment. I don't know if I've attached them to episodes yet or not. I don't think I have, but you will, you, by the time you hear this, you'll probably have heard them. Um, so, um, so my whole thing was, is that when my different, like I said, originally, the difference is between Vic and I was that I always was out somewhere, you know, as long as it wasn't too cold or it wasn't raining, you know, or I had other things to do. I was going to the mall by myself, whether I had money or not, I was, you know, exploring, you know, going to other places in the, you know, in my hometown and trying to find video games and just, and just sometimes just wandering around just to wander, just to get out of the house, you know? And I mean, especially once I really started wanting to find, you know, different and new and new and different video games and find arcades and find game rooms. You know, I mean, I remember when I was a child and I was living on the east east end of town with uh, my mom and my my future stepfather at uh, his place. Um, you know, the, I mean, especially you know, especially during the summer. I mean, that's when I would stay with my mom and and uh, my stepfather. Is you know, especially during the summer, both me and my brother would we would pack our stuff up and we would go over to stay there for the summer. And yeah, I mean, I remember uh, always hanging out at the dip and sip. I mean, I talk about that in uh, uh, arcades and stuff that I grew up with in in, uh, Bridgeport. That was what episode, I wanna say four, three or four. And I mean, I hung out at the dip and sip because they had arcade games and they had pinball machines. Back then, candy was cheap. You could buy a full-size candy bar for a quarter. It's not like a dollar now, (laughs) you know? I mean, I hate to sound like an old man, but just that's how it was. Um, You know, you could also buy like um, um, bubble gum for five cents and um, 
Jolly Rancher didn't always have the little chunk candies that they're famous for now. Back in the day, they had these long uh, uh, candy bars made of that stuff, you know, and you could buy those for like 10 cents and then they would sell the chunk candies for a nickel. I don't know when they started making those, but um, it was somewhere along the line. But anyway, um, so when I used to live on the East End with my mom, you know, I think it was just sort of to get a break. My mom and my, and my grandfather were, I hate to say it like this, but it's true. They were at, at odds constantly. Um, you know, because my mom lived her life a certain way and my grandfather disagreed with it and they were constantly just, you know, having issues between the two of them. I mean, I've heard, I heard arguments between them sometimes and at the time I was a little too young to understand what they were arguing about, but through some half-remembered, uh, memories... Um, I, I understand it now <laughs> being a man who's 51 years old. Yeah, I understand it. But anyway, and not only that, I would have some of those same, uh, issues and disagreements with various members of my family growing up, but that's, that's not for this podcast, <laughs> for this, that's not for public consumption. Um, so I remember I was growing, I was staying the, I remember, I think I was there the summer of 76 and the summer of 79 and the summer of 81, I think. I think those are the summers I would spend over there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember the summer of 76 was fun. You know, I was what, seven years old going on eight and yeah, I would just wander around the east end of Bridgeport all the way all the way out to Stratford because um, there was a shopping center called Stratford Town Fair back then it's not it doesn't exist now which is kind of sad but I mean they had a Bradley's uh, department store Town Fair Lanes was there I talked about that um, and you know it was just one of those things where you know, I was just always out for adventure. I didn't go, I remember my brother used to go with me sometimes when we go to like Stratford Town Fair, you know, we would buy some stuff to eat or, you know, go to Bradley's and just, you know, wander around and look at stuff, you know, and then we would head back. And, and my brother, of course, being older than me, he was like, at the, if it was summer, he was just about to turn 12 or excuse me, he was just about to turn 13, summer 76. Yeah, he was just about to turn 13. And there was this huge graveyard in uh, that connected Stratford Avenue to the street that we would walk down leaving our neighborhood. That, that, um, that street would go almost all the way to where we were headed but in order to get to Stratford Avenue to continue walking to town fair, we would have to cut through a graveyard. And of course, my brother at this point, he's just saying stuff to mess with me the whole time because he just, there was just a part of him that just loved to upset me. <laughs> oh man. 
All right, so I'm at a stop right now. So let me go take care of this and I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So yeah, my brother, I remember we used to go through that graveyard to get to town fair all the time. And he used to do stuff to scare me and upset me and blah, blah, blah. And there are ghosts in that graveyard and all that other stuff. And yeah, I fell, I fell for 99% of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's where, you know, that's where I was. I mean, I was constantly on the hunt for, I mean, I've said it a thousand times already, you know, that's, that was along with, uh, along with Girls and uh, Star Wars, those were like my three main, uh, focuses, or foci, if you will, uh, when I was, you know, going from childhood into preteen years, that's what it was, and not necessarily in that order. I mean, when it came to girls, I mean, I was a painfully shy kid, which was a constant target of ridicule in my neighborhood, but that's just what it was. Um, I didn't know the rules about how to approach a girl. My brother certainly didn't teach me anything. I had to learn it all on my own and from you know a couple of friends who actually had my best interests at heart. Um, and with Star Wars, when it came out in 77, it's like I've said before, you know, that was it. You know, it was Star Wars in 77, video games in 78, and that was it. That's all I really cared about, you know. And then when I got a little older, girls came into that, uh, aspect. Maybe one day I'll talk about the time I had a, at the age of six or seven, I think I had a crush on my camp counselor who was 18. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I'll tell that story. Maybe I won't. It doesn't have all that much to do with arcade games and arcades. So maybe I'll just leave that where it lies. Um, so my whole thing is, is that, yeah, I would try to discover a lot of things on my own because my mother didn't support it. I mean, more than she actually, more than she really did. I mean, aside from, <coughs> excuse me, aside from uh, buying me an Atari 2600 in 1981, an Atari 5200 in 1983, um, and buying me uh, Atari 2600 game cartridges, and of course, you know, giving me an allowance that allowed me to feed my arcade addiction, which by the time I was 15 years old was in full swing. You know, if we're if 15, that's what, 1984? So yeah, by that time, yeah, that was like number one of my obsessions. At that point, it was video games, girls, even though I was still painfully shy at 15 years old. I didn't come out of my shell until I was well into my 20s. Let's just put it that way, you know. Um, video games, girls, 
if I was 15, comic books had snuck into the top three. And yeah, you know, and of course, you know, and then when I got with some friends and I, who actually showed me uh, legitimate uh, anime, that became an obsession too. Um, but that didn't happen until like, what? When did I meet Robert? Uh, Robert Diaz, um, who I can't even remember where I met him. Um, I think he was a friend of a friend of mine, if I'm not mistaken. And I used to go over his house and play D&D with him and his cousin. And his cousin was a really good artist, too. I mean, he had full write-ups of all his characters with um, hand-drawn portraits. And, yeah, it was it was cool. You know, he is him and his cousin, they were both kind of cool. Then I introduced him to uh, some other friends, and that's the last I saw of him. <laughs> yeah, that that was yeah, that was that did not make me very happy. I never liked it when it happened. My best friend Robert did it to me in 1990 when he started hanging out with a bunch of dudes that. Uh, I grew up with in my neighborhood and then I just hardly ever saw him. Yeah, I was pissed at him for that. So I'm like, dude, you know, I was your best friend when no one wanted to be your friend. What the hell? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I shouldn't even go into that. That's 20 plus years ago or 30 plus years ago now. Um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, as I grew up, it never really went away. I mean, especially when uh, I would go with my family on family reunion trips. Uh, most, I mean, I've spoken about it before. You know, most of the time, the family reunions were in the um, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia area. You know, it was like Norfolk, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Petersburg, um, Baltimore, um, a couple of uh, towns uh, right off of Interstate 95 going through Maryland, um, Washington, D.C. a couple of times, New York City once. They had a reunion here, and they had a reunion in Connecticut in what was, what year was that? 87, I think. Yeah, that was 87. That was the year after my brother passed away. And, um, and let's see, um, let's see, 88 was Virginia. I think the last time I went to a family reunion was 89. And for the, I think we went to Youngstown, Ohio in 89, now that I think about it. Um, or maybe not. Oh, I'm getting all my years confused. But anyway, um, so every time we went on a family reunion when I was old enough, <coughs> excuse me, when I was old enough, um, I would just wander, especially after that, after we got back from the park that we would go to on Saturday, uh, early Saturday afternoon to like, say about five or six o'clock in the evening, then we would pack up, go back to the hotel we all rented out, and we would, you know, take a shower, relax until the uh, 
the uh, evening dinner and get together, which was later that night, I think about eight o'clock or so. Hmm. I remember most of the time I would just come back from wherever we went and I would just go wandering, you know? I would just be like, I want to find some video games. I mean, the jackpot I remember that I had was, oh, what year was that? Was that 86? I think it was 86. Let me think. Or maybe it was, oh goodness, I cannot remember. Or no, it was 83. That's right. It was it, it was 83, I think. Or no, it was 82. 82, sorry. Um, it was 1982. It was me and my mother. The two of us went. I think it was 82. Um, my mother and I were the only ones from uh, our branch of the family who went to the reunion that year. It was in Virginia. And... Um, I remember, uh, I remember that, um, um, one of the members of my family was hanging out with my mom and we would, and he took me to an arcade, you know, there was an arcade nearby and I remember, uh, just being in that arcade for, oh God, what, about two, three hours before, you know. I actually almost got bodily pulled out of there because I was nowhere near done. <laughs> I had money, you know, my mother gave me some money and yeah, I was just willing to be there as until my money ran out. Um, but um, yeah, and then I remember we came back, we flew, because I remember we flew down there, that was my first time being on an airplane. I remember that because um, side story my mom and my brother were went to uh, Los Angeles for my brother to visit his father and um, they want you know my mother asked me to go along and unfortunately I was too much of a dork because <laughs> all I could think about is that yeah the second I get off the plane in LA um, second I get off the plane there's gonna be an earthquake and we're all gonna die I'd watched one too many disaster movies. <laughs> oh my God, I was such a dork. Um, <laughs> sorry, it just makes me laugh. I have to laugh at myself. Um, but yeah, um, so I remember uh, we got back from that family reunion and you know we got we got off the plane in New York at LaGuardia I think and we got on got in a uh, Connecticut limousine that was a, a limousine company that would take you from the major airports to wherever you want to go you know it was like from your door to the airport it was like one of the early uh, limousine services you know they had limousines I think they had they had um, uh, like modified uh, blazers, you know, because they, it was sort of like just an extended uh, Chevy blazer, you know, to where you could fit like what, 15 people or something like that in there and do it fairly comfortably. Um, so, um, yeah, so I remember we, got off, you know, came back, got off the plane in LaGuardia, got in a Connecticut limousine, 
went all the way back to Connecticut. That took like what, um, almost two hours. And we, we came back early in the morning. I think we got back in New York around 10 in the morning. I think we got back home somewhere around one, one or two o'clock. And as soon as um, my mom and I got our suitcases in and everything like that, you know, I immediately took off and went to the mall, went to the arcade. <laughs> you know, that's just how it was for me back then. And my mother knew it. You know, at this, I think at this point, by this point, like 1982, 1981, 1982, yeah, my mother knew that, yeah, my, I, my main interest was video games. And the problem was, is that there was no way to, just by uh, where it was at the time, where things were at the time, and also just my, the way my brain was working, <laughs> um, there's no way to turn that into a positive thing. And that was that was the problem. Um, so, you know, getting back to the main point after, you know, wandering way out by the warning track and left field or something like that, um, it was, that's where, that's what I would do. You know, if I heard about a video game somewhere or there was a really cool game someplace, I'd find a way to get there whether if I had to walk it or take a bus or ride my bike or borrow a friend's bike, yeah, that's what I would do, whatever it took, you know? I think it cost me some friendships, but you know what? That's one of the downsides to being uh, addicted to video games. Unless you know people who are in that way of life, yeah, yeah, the people who are outside the don't understand. My family never understood it. They damn sure never approved of it. I can, I can certainly uh, attest to that. I mean, with the possible exception of my Aunt Karen, who was the youngest of my mom's generation. I think she's only like 10 years older than me or thereabouts. You know, I think 10 or 12 years older than me, so she was more like an older sister than an actual aunt. Um, and she was the only one who kind of even tried to understand me out of my mom's generation. You know, my mom just put up with it because she, the more she tried to put me on a different path, the more I resisted. And that's just my personality. And it still remains that way <laughs> to this day. You know, I don't like being pushed in a certain direction and out of sheer spite, I will go in the opposite direction, you know? Um, but, and my, you know, any, my uncles, they were always trying to put me on the straight and narrow and I just wouldn't listen. My grandfather the same way. I listened to my grandfather because I knew not to cross him, <laughs> you know? I did it once and I paid a very heavy price for it and I knew never to do it again. And that's just how it was. Um, you know, my uncles were always trying to put me on the straight path and I would just never listen to them. Um, my aunts, you know, they dealt with me as best as they could. And, you know, it was what it was. And, you know, that's just how it was. Um, so, 
you know, so yeah, that's just how it was for me. You know, I was always on the hunt, looking for video games. If there was a video game to be played and I had a quarter, I would, and I was really interested in it, yeah, I'd play it without a doubt. Um, you know, and I listened to Vic regale his, you know, childhood's tales, and I'm envious of him because he had a, a parent who understood and didn't get in the way of it. He had a grandmother who was supportive and who actually liked video games herself. I mean, I'm jealous of him in that aspect. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yes, I had an older brother who was into video games and God only knows from, <clears throat> excuse me, from when he got back from the Marine Corps in what was that, 1983, you know, all, you know up until his, his tragic death in 1986, um, yeah, when it came to video games, and, you know, especially the game, you know, the uh, the games on my twenty six hundred, we would have battles, we would have wars. You know, I mean, it all started like I said back in episode zero and episode one. It all started way back in, God, what was it, nineteen seventy six? No, no, not seventy six. No, the reunion was in New York City in nineteen seventy six. Nineteen seventy five. It was the year before. It was 1975, and there was a Pong machine and a tank machine in the lobby of the hotel we were staying in, in just outside of Washington, Washington D.C., because I think that's where the family reunion was. <laughs> I can't remember anything about the family reunion. Only thing I remember is, you know, being awake at night while we're driving down Interstate 95, and there was a full moon that night, and just just looking out and just seeing everything lit up by that moon because it was a clear night, clear summer night. That's the only things I can remember. And of course the playing Pong in my in a tank with my brother. Um, and, you know, then it sort of died down through the years until I got that 2600 in 1981. And then when I started, and by this time, uh, my brother had just left for the Marine Corps. He had just left. Um, 1981. I'm well, at this point. I'm 13 when I got it. That would made my, that would made my brother uh, 18, and he went to he went to the Marine Corps, and I didn't see him for a couple of years. He wasn't home in '82. He came home in '83, um, and and then. Uh, he, you know, he, he and I started playing games against each other, and I would buy games for us to play against each other, like, uh, oh goodness, like, uh, volleyball, uh, Atari Real Sports Volleyball, um, M-Network Football, M-Network Baseball, um, Atari Real Sports Baseball, and stuff like that. And we would just go at it and at it and at it. And by this time, I was good enough that even though my brother at this time in 1983, my brother is 20 and I'm just about to turn 15. And by this time, I mean, I, I put my time in as far as video games went. I mean, 
you know, I put in my time. And, you know, by this time, you know, my brother, he would get good in a game, but I was good enough to figure out ways to beat him. And the ways that I would beat him, he would get really, really mad. Um, especially like um, M Network Baseball. That's the one we had our our most intense battles at because that was a much better uh, baseball game than Atari Real Sports Baseball. It was based off of the Intellivision uh, baseball game that they put out for the Intellivision back in 19, what, 1980? 1979 or 80? And, you know, yeah. And it was just a much better baseball game and we would have wars and yeah, but at by, I'd say probably, what, fall of 83? Yeah, I was beating him constantly to the point where he didn't want to play me anymore. <laughs> because I learned how to pitch, I learned how to paint corners and throw strikes and he couldn't hit them. And then he figured out how to hit, then, then he tried to emulate me and we would have like these like extra inning uh, pitcher's duels for, you know, it's like 0-0 zero, zero or 1-1 one, one going into like the bottom of the 11th. Then I had just this inspiration on how to, how to, uh, how to um, hit home runs down the third baseline. You know, even though he was like trying to pitch and hit the outside corner and I would, I'd figure out how to move my uh, batter just enough to where I could hit it. Then I would start to swing super early and then I would just drill it down the line and it's a home run and the game was over. <laughs> and then, you know, my brother couldn't quite grok that and he couldn't figure out how I was doing it. And yeah, that, that, led, that led to some arguments, <laughs> let's say. Okay, I'm at stop, so let me go and get this, and I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So, yeah, I mean, that's just how it was between my brother and I. Um, you know, my brother, like I said, um, when I did a top 10 for, what was it, 1985, I think, that had uh, Megazone in it, that was his game. That was the one game I couldn't beat him at because that was like the only game that he would play in the arcade. I mean, there were plenty of times where I was either, it was either the summertime or it was just, before, it was before summertime and I was skipping school. Uh, by this time I would be a freshman, or not a freshman, a uh, sophomore in high school in uh, early 1985. And, um, yeah, so, and my brother worked at the, at the Reed's department store in the mall as a stalker, um, and I would be hanging out in the mall the entire time, and there were times where I'd be in the arcade and just hanging out, and my brother would come in, and I'd ask him if, you know, I'd bum a dollar off of him, you know, he'd go and play Megazone for, you know, 20 minutes or something before he'd, you know, leave and go back to work. And I would just, you know, continue doing what I was doing. Um, and, you know, like I said, those, those, 
video game battles my brother and I had would go right up until his tragic passing in the early spring of 1986 at the age of um, 22. And, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, in one way I cherish and in the other way, you know, it kind of upsets me for several different reasons. One, that my brother lost his life at such a young age and you know there are times where yeah I you know that you know I missed him you know and I missed you know what camaraderie we had which I by I will just be straight up and honest about it it wasn't as much as it could have been um, we were two very, very different people aside from our age differences, which didn't help either. Five years is a huge, huge difference for two siblings to have because no matter at what stage in life you are, it's always just this massive difference because you are just in a completely different, uh, area of development as a child, a preteen, a teenager, a young adult, a full-grown adult, you know, and that's just how it was between my brother and I, um, and, you know, yeah, but at the same time, it was like one of the few things that we connected over, my brother and I, was video games. That was one of the very few things my brother and I actually had a connection over. You know, uh, he would, and actually I take that back. The other thing was Dungeons and Dragons when I started playing in 1981 and I started buying up the, uh, the books in, in, in late 1981 going into 1982. It was just before my brother went and left to go to the Marine Corps. I do remember that. Uh, I may have the time frame of when he was in the Corps uh, wrong. I think he left in 80. It wasn't 81. I think he left in 82. And he, yeah, and he didn't come back, I think, until like early 84 now that I think about it. You know, like I said, I'm 51. My memory isn't quite what it used to be, but I, everything is accurate that I tell you. It's just to have the time frames just a little bit off. So, yeah, I mean, any year that I tell you about something that happened, give like a, a one year grace period either way. Just give or take a year, <laughs> you know? But um, yeah, those were the two things that my brother and I actually kind of bonded over was Dungeons and Dragons once I taught him how to play and I let him borrow my, play, my first edition player's handbook and he figured it out and the first, the first character he made was a uh, half-elf fighter cleric mage, and I still have that character. I think in, you know, in storage somewhere, I, still, I think I still have the, the character sheets that he used, and I actually converted him over to be uh, an NPC in my current campaign wall. Um, let's see... But, you know, yeah, there's just sometimes, I won't go so far as to say I have regrets about it, but, you know, it is a little bit sad that my brother and I 
weren't closer, you know, but like I said, you know, we are, we were two radically different people. I mean, you know, you know, for, uh, sake of clarity, yes, my brother and I had two different fathers. Um, my mother was married to my brother's father for several years, then they got divorced. Um, and then I want to say about, oh, three years later, maybe four years later, I came along, you know? And so my brother, at this point, by the time I'm born in 1968, my brother's already five years old, you know? And it's always been like that. Um, and my, I remember one of my aunts, um, when she started having kids, um, she had her first son and then she had her second son five years later. And I remember talking to her about that saying, um, you need to watch how those two interact because it's, you know, cause it's diff, it's not easy being that much of a younger brother to an older assembly who's five years older one year, two years, maybe even three years, that's okay. But anything past three years, it, it's just tough. I mean, just from my experiences, you know, it's just, it's difficult because you look up to your brother. I mean, it's, it's human nature, right? And, <clears throat> and, um, when you have such an older brother, you know, by the time you're five years old you're as old as he was when you were born he's already 10 and he's in a different place and in up until I want to say oh my goodness until I was like I want to say I was like maybe like 12 or 13 years old I was constantly chasing after him you know because you know and by that time it's like you have by that time you have precious little in common with your older sibling who's now 17, 18 years old, you're only 12 or 13, you know? You're just entering into the area that they've already gone through and they're in such a completely different place and they are, you know, doing such different things that you only are now coming to be even mildly aware of, if you know what I'm saying. But anyway, uh, enough about that. Um, so, I mean, I mean, uh, when I first started doing this recording and I, I had listened to Vic's episode, yeah, I was like, I was just floored. I was really, really shocked that our origins were so similar, you know, but it's like, if we even unknowingly to each other, neither one, neither one of us were aware of the other's existence and there's no reason to because, you know, where he grew up was probably close to a thousand miles away from where I was growing up. And, you know, that's just how it was. And then I just find it funny that we were on a parallel track to a certain point, then all of a sudden my track just branches way off. And it was just such an interesting thing to hear that someone had such a similar beginning to my own journey into video games and arcades that I just had to talk about it. And from there, of course, because my mind wanders and things come up and I talk about them, yeah, it turned into something else. So, you know, 
Um, so yeah, I'm at a stop right now and I'm gonna try to run through this day. It's gonna be a short day today, so I'm trying to get done with everything as quickly as possible. So um, I'm just gonna call it here. So once again, this is Brian saying, have fun out there. Good gaming if you any of your arcades are open right now. Stay safe. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.